This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This all began for me when I appeared in mid-September on five Sunday shows, days after our embassies around the world had been threatened by violence and demonstrations, and when our diplomatic facility in Benghazi was attacked by terrorists. Against that backdrop, my daughter, I can only assume, was imbibing what was in the background on the television and in the whole atmosphere. She started to say that, you know, she was seeing images of men coming out of the wall at her when she was at school in the classroom or when she was at her friend's house for a sleepover. And she was having what can only be described as hallucinations. When we get into these political hit games in Washington and what I call the politics of personal destruction, I think many people don't understand that the people who suffer most are not necessarily the targets of the attacks, but the people who love the people who are the targets of the attacks. Ambassador Susan Rice was the national security advisor for President Obama, and she was the member of the administration who went out on TV days after a terrorist attack on the consulate in Benghazi and said what the intelligence community told her to say. She was not personally in charge of the consulate. She was not dishonest or incorrect in what she said on TV that day. But that day would shape her life as Republicans in D.C. and at Fox News seized on her words as a chance to attack her, President Obama, and a chance to damage the future campaign of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The attack on Rice was painful and unrelenting, and it included senators like John McCain publicly questioning her intelligence and her character. Let's be clear. The Benghazi attack, which killed four Americans, was tragic. And the way Republicans in D.C. used Benghazi as a political football was disgusting and disingenuous and part of the politics of personal destruction, which makes modern D.C. so disgusting. And it was all done in bad faith. They knew Susan Rice had not lied. They knew she did not deserve to be attacked. But she was a convenient villain, and she gave them a chance to stick it to Obama as he was considering her for secretary of state. The attacks cost her a shot at that position, and they had an even more acute impact on her family. They ended up causing her then nine-year-old daughter to have frightening hallucinations. They led to her teenage son crying in her arms. They hurt her mom, her husband, her friends, and her staff. In her new memoir, Tough Love, Susan talks Benghazi, Obama, family, and tennis. I was dying to talk Benghazi, but... You know what it is. We had to start with tennis. It's Ambassador Susan Rice on Torre Show. 
you're an avid player. How often do you play? What's your favorite stroke? What's your favorite player? Favorite player at, at the moment is definitely Serena. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. And I'm just dying for her to win a grand one, slam one now more. after the baby. And every time it doesn't happen, it's like a, a dagger in my heart. Right. right. Um, I've been playing tennis since probably I was five or six. And my dad was an avid tennis player, and he's the one who taught me and my brother to play. And he used to take our behinds out on the court and work us hard. Um, and he was quite good. And it, you know, the high, one of the high points of my life is when I was finally able to beat him. Some right. point in my late twenties, probably. Okay. And that was mostly a function of the fact that he was getting older <laughs> yeah. rather than I was getting better. I play when I can now. I play at least once a week. I try to play more, um, and I usually hit with a coach who uh, is the head of the St. Albans school tennis team. Okay. And so he's a high school tennis coach. He's quite good himself, much, much better than me. So he helps me up my game. Okay. And he's been playing with me at least on a weekly basis for the last 10 years. Okay. Um, so you're like serious, I like can like stand on the baseline and whack it with you and not like one of these like, you know, yeah. I just like play a little doubles. No, 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 no. See, that was one of my dreams when I left government. I thought, okay, my dream is if I could play three hours of tennis a day yes. and get really, really good. Yes. And within the first three weeks of leaving government where I was trying to play most every day, I didn't rip my Achilles, but I badly <laughs> injured my Achilles on one leg such that I really had to stop for a while and get real physical therapy. And then the other one. So about for about six months after I left government, I was uh, severely disabled. Hampered. <laughs> in my ability to play tennis and even walk around. Um, so that was the point at which I realized, honey, you ain't playing no three hours of tennis. Three hours You're too old. You're too old. That's so I, I want to find a, I'm not at the level that I think I could play. I think I could do two or three times a week. Okay. You know, and I usually play only about an hour and a half, but it's, it's a lot of, it's competitive. Working with uh, Obama so closely for years, what is he like? What is the leadership style like? It's a lot of what you see is what you get. I mean, he's super smart, very calm, uh, very deliberative. He puts a lot of pressure on himself and the people around him to be on top of their game. But what I think people don't see is that he's actually really funny. And, you know, <laughs> we could be on a foreign trip riding in the presidential limousine which is otherwise known as the beast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would turn on his music and we would all just be dancing, jamming in the car, yeah. you know? And uh, that's, that's the other side of him. He has a fun and relaxed, very down to earth um, aspect to him, but he's also, he's just funny. And he teases the people around him quite a bit. Yeah. I was the butt of some of his jokes. <laughs> he likes, for example, just since we were talking about tennis, he tried to play like he had a game, <laughs> but he really doesn't because I've, I've seen him hit uh, informally. He can he definitely has a basketball game, right? <laughs> but he does basketball. not have much of a tennis game, and still he's you know talks smack and acts like <laughs> he can beat me and other people who do have games. Not going to happen. He has a high sense of confidence in his own ability. Were you the best tennis player in the Obama administration? No, no, Who no. Was? No, no. Actually, some of the men were really good. People you wouldn't necessarily okay. expect. Okay. Gene Sperling, who was the National Economic Advisor, yeah. is a really good tennis player. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, 
Neil Wolin, who was a deputy secretary of treasury, good tennis player. Raj Shah, USAID, very good tennis player. I mean, there are a lot. Yeah. Some of these guys I still see on the court, yeah. you know, on Sunday. But yeah. no, there are a lot of good tennis players and nice. a lot of good basketball players. So, okay, you talk a lot about Benghazi in this. I want to talk about this. I covered that you just blinked really hard. You're like, okay, here we go. I don't yeah, want to talk about it. We're going from tennis to Benghazi, but yeah, okay, cool. Well, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, like, you know, I covered it at MSNBC and, like, watched it, like, moment by moment. And it was like, okay, so, you know, this horrible thing happened and, like, you know, that's terrible. And then surely this is not going to continue. And, like, it just kept metastasizing and growing and growing. And, you know, you start talking about um, your daughter having these, you know, horrible hallucinations and this, you know, this deep medical response to your problem. And you characterize it as a, it's just a political hit job, right? That happens in bad faith. They understood what happened and blamed it on you regardless. And when it resounds to your child's health. That's, that's that, when you get pissed. Yeah. That makes you <laughs> really you get angry. Pissed. Yes. So, just to give our listeners some context, this all began for me when I appeared in mid-September on five Sunday shows, uh, days after our embassies around the world had been uh, uh, threatened by violence and demonstrations, and when our uh, facil diplomatic facility in Benghazi was attacked by terrorists, and we lost our ambassador, uh, Christopher Stevens, who was a colleague and, and a friend, and we lost three other American uh, who were there on official business. And it was horrific. And I went on the Sunday shows and I was asked to provide uh, the perspective on what had happened. And I used the talking points that the intelligence community had cleared and prepared for public address. And we all knew at the time that these were early days and that it was possible that the information could change. And so I prefaced all my comments with saying this is preliminary, but this is the best current information we have. Here you, it is. You didn't want to do those shows that day, right? Well, it, it was not so much that I didn't want to. No, I didn't want to. I had been planning to be away with Family. my kids. Yeah. Uh, and I did take my kids to Ohio State for a football game on the Saturday because I'd promised them months ago that that's what we were going to do. So that's how I'd planned to spend my weekend. I was asked uh, by the White House uh, to go on the shows because they had asked Secretary Clinton. She had declined, presumably because she was exhausted after a, a very taxing week, um, since she was directly responsible for uh, the, those uh, diplomatic facilities and, and the, those we were lost. And so I, you know, sort of out of duty and obligation rather than any other desire, agreed to do it. And it, as I said, it really wasn't what I wanted to do because I wanted just to have that time to hang with my kids. Um, but I came back and I did the shows and I re faithfully reflected that uh, information the intelligence community had provided. And it turned out to be wrong, ultimately in one respect only. But it was uh, it was about the fact that there wasn't in a demonstration outside of our diplomatic facility. But within seven to ten days of my Sunday show appearances, there were, became this groundswell from the Republican side of of Washington and the media that accused me of lying and covering up 
uh, a terrorist attack on behalf of the president. Nothing could be further from the truth. But it was in the middle of an election season, and it was a way to attack President Obama's successful record on uh, killing Osama bin Laden right. and uh, really decimating core al-Qaeda. And so as somebody who was the public face of that message, um, I became uh, in the crosshairs. And what was so frustrating about this, I'll come back to my daughter and the mm -hmm. personal side of this, we lost four Americans. Mm -hmm. These were people who were giving all they had in a very dangerous area to advance our interests. And we lost them, and nobody seemed to focus on that tragedy um, and what we should learn from it and what we can do about it in the future. And then what we lost subsequently uh, was the focus and intention to Libya at a critical moment where our leadership might have made a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, that was the fundamental tragedy. And then, as you mentioned, you know, in the hot house of Washington politics in an election year, uh, it just became nonstop, you know, on cable television and, you know, Republicans calling for my resignation and Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, saying that I was, uh, you know, I'm either incompetent or, you know. He was, uh, yeah, much more than calling it, or, for your resignation. It, is, you know, doubting your intelligence, call, calling into question your character. Yeah. Yeah. Incompetent or untrustworthy. Yeah. So against that backdrop, my daughter, who was nine at the time, uh, I, I can only assume was imbibing what was in the background on the television and in the whole atmosphere about what was going on. And I think my husband and I look back on that and realized that we were too slow to ensure that when she was around that the television wasn't on because I just think it <clears throat> seeped into her consciousness in a way that my son, who was older, I think was able to manage much more uh, effectively. And so within a, you know six weeks or so of all this starting, she started to say that, you know, she was seeing images of men coming out of the wall at her when she was at school in the classroom or when she was at her friend's house for a sleepover. And she was having what can only be described as hallucinations. And we were, of course, just terrified. And we took her to the doctors and Children's Hospital in Washington, and they put her through a battery of tests, and they were worried about, you know, is this psychosis? Is this a brain tumor? Schizophrenia? you know, some visual problem. Uh, they just went through all that sort of stuff and were able, thankfully, within a couple of weeks to world, rule out the worst case scenarios. And that left the, the doctors to conclude that it was a stress reaction to, to what was going on around us. The reason I include that in the book is because I think people may not appreciate that when we get into these political hit games in Washington and what I call the politics of personal destruction, mm -hmm. which, you know, frankly happens on a bipartisan basis. I think mo many people don't understand that the people who suffer most are not necessarily the targets of the attacks, but the people who love the people who are the targets of the attacks. So mm -hmm. my mom, who had just also had, you know, her fourth cancer surgery or fifth cancer surgery and had had a stroke, she really was consumed by this and very, very um, upset. And my daughter, you know, almost 75 years younger, equally indifferently affected. And 
you know, I don't think, unfortunately, that things are going to change in Washington anytime soon. But I do think that it's worth having regard for the human consequences of this kind of political uh, attacks. I mean, I signed up for this. She I joined. She did not. Nor did my mother. But the little ones, you really, I feel for it. I feel for them, you know, whoever's kids they are, quite frankly. I mean, it makes you angry, right? When it hits her in this deeply oh, yeah. medical way. Who, who, what parent wouldn't be furious? Right. And scared. And, you know, your, your instinct, obviously, is to protect your child. Um, but then there, you realize that sometimes you can't. And parents often blame themselves. Did you blame yourself? I blamed us, as I said, for not realizing soon enough that we should turn off the television. Mm. Um, and it seems like a small thing, and we didn't understand its potential impact in the moment. But, uh, you know, that was a mistake. Now, it can happen to any of us. I remember my son coming home and saying, what does it mean when they hold up the signs that say, I can't breathe? And I started to explain to him about Eric Garner. And he's like, oh, no, no, I've seen the footage because you were watching MSNBC all the time because I'm so glued to the story that I don't realize like, oh, he's standing behind me paying attention. He's seen this video now 50 times and um, can happen to any of us. Um, but you also get into that this became this ongoing story. Because I think typically it would be, you know, this moment, you know, Obama had just been reelected, you know, well, you know, here's a way to get at him, right? Here's a way to dirty Hillary before she, because we know she's going to run. But it just goes on and on and on, right? And you talk about <laughs> why you become this Fox villain. Uh, yeah, there's somebody new who we can attack. You talk about it's not about being a black woman. No, I say that's what their friend says. I'm saying that's what the guy said. Yeah, your source says it's not about being. And then he points to people like Bill Clinton and surely, Barney Frank. That's well, part I, of it. I'm not prepared to say it's not part of it. But I can't weigh that. I mean, had I been, let me let me give you an example. Another person who was publicly pilloried in the same context for much the same thing was my colleague, Ben Rhodes, mm -hmm. who's a white guy mm -hmm. uh, and also very close to President Obama. And, um, you know, he too got dragged up before these, you know, f in front of this investigation and all this stuff. I, I think that I was an attractive target for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, I don't think being black and female made me less attractive in any way, shape or form. Right. But uh, I think this is a big, it's bigger than that. I think it's also just about trying to, to deny, tarnish, denigrate President Obama. Mm -hmm. And I was a, a vehicle to do that. And, um, and to the extent that it was focused on me for a period of time, as I say early in the book, uh, I think as much of, as anything, it's the fact that I've been the kind of person who has never asked for permission or validation from, you know, big white guys. Mm -hmm. 
And I think some people have a problem with that. I mean, I feel like, you know, there used to be, we know there used to be a time in Washington when there was a campaign and then there was a season to govern. And then now yeah, I was mistaken in assuming that too. Right now, that. <laughs> now, now we're in a permanent campaign and this became part of the permanent campaign that like we're, yes, we want to take uh, from Obama, but also we know Hillary 2016 is coming. Yeah. Although actually the, the whole Benghazi drama in all of its dimensions, which ironically uh, Mike Pompeo played a major role in. Mm. And now he's worried about the State Department employees being targeted. It's a little rich. <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> we have, uh, you know, Secretary Clinton, um, who in the early stages of uh, the Benghazi drama, you know, got very relatively little attention compared to me and others over the long term. You know, it was used against her very directly for a sustained period of time. And frankly, after I um, decided in December of 2012 not to uh, continue to be in consideration for Secretary of State, the level of interest in me dropped off pre precipitously, at least among members of Congress, and then eventually on Fox News. Mm -hmm. But still to this day, I'm a, uh, I'm a reliable boogeyman for mm -hmm. them if they want to, you know, ring a partisan bell. My name is sort of gold for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I look at them and I'm like, you know, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, you guys, you know. <laughs> You know that, I mean, for one, Susan Rice was not there protecting the consulate. <clears throat> you know, she was not, you know that she didn't go on five shows and lie. You know she didn't. So the pushing of this for months and months and months and these personal attacks, it just becomes a very unctuous brand of politics. Yes. And I, you know, people say now, you know, what happened to Lindsey Graham? And I say, well, not much. Right. <laughs> this right. has kind of right. been par for the course. I right. think at least I got a glimpse of it before some other people did. And, you know, this moment that sticks out at me when, when, when uh, Bob Corker, Senator Corker, says, your problem is you are too good, right? So that you're too effective. So we have to take a good player off. That was, of he was very explicit about that. And he, and he said it more than once to me. I mean, does... And, and for him, you know, Corker and I actually had a good relationship. So for him, uh, you know, his, his point was, don't take it personally. It's not about you. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the just, game. It's, yeah. The game is the game. <laughs> how does that, how do you square that with, you have to be twice as good, right? Which I was told as a young person as well, right? And... So you're living your life. Clearly, you took that far more seriously than I did and rose to the highest level. And you're trying to be twice as good. And then you run into this, I, I guess, in a way, it's a glass ceiling where this white man is telling you, well, you're too good. I don't know if it was a glass ceiling, but it was uh, definitely a pretty big speed bump. And what I learned from that is really what my brother hammered into me, my younger brother, John. Who's who's very very close to me? Um, we're not quite two years apart, and all of the experiences of our parents' divorce and childhood, and all these things we went to through together, <clears throat> have made us stay very close. 
And he said to me, as I was trying to learn the lessons out of this experience, he said, you, you've never really had a public failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've never had to learn the hard way that merit isn't enough. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You can be as good as you are. You can be the top of your you know, field or your class or whatever it is. And that's not enough. You, relationships matter. You need people who are going to go to bat for you. You need to ask for help, which is something I'm really not good at. And I'm trying as I um, get older to get better at that. But his basic message was, you know, you can't just think that just being good is or being great is going to be sufficient. It's, there's more to it than that. You need those relationships. Yep, that absolutely. That are buoy you in different <clears throat> situations. That's great advice. You, from my younger brother. From, <laughs> <laughs> my younger sister tells me a lot of amazing things. Um, I, I want to disagree with you on, you, you keep sort of saying, you know, well, this politics of personal destruction is played by both sides. And you talk about this a lot in the book. Um, well, I'm not equating them. I cannot think of anyone in the Trump administration or the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, who was attacked by Democrats and the Democratic media apparatus, whatever that is outside of MSNBC, who was roundly and repeatedly attacked and wrongfully to where Democrats are like, it's just a game. I don't think that- Well, I don't think we would say it as a game. We would say we're, what we're doing, we're doing for the right reasons. And I'm, I, I want to be clear here. I'm not making an equivalence argument. Okay. But- uh, whatever the merits of the attack, whether fully justified or wholly unjustified, my point is not about the merits. My point in raising my daughter is that it, there are consequences and they're human consequences. And we should, in my view, be mindful of those, even when they befall people who we don't like and don't respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even your, your son, when you do what you believe to be the just thing and saying like, I have to recuse myself, right? From not recuse, but not step recuse, out, step back, step back and say, I don't want to continue I'm to be considered for, for secretary, secretary of state. state. Yeah. And he cries because he's like, this is counter to what you, you always told me don't quit. And it's kind of like, I'm not really quitting. I know you don't understand that as a teenager, but I'm not really quitting, but I'm doing the right thing for the larger situation. That uh, was really hard to explain because he's right. I've always told my kids, you know, you got to do your best. You can't give up. You can't, you know, shortchange yourself. And that's how I was raised. Uh, and here, you know, age 15, I'm trying to explain to my son who's been very stoical through this whole process. And I was so surprised when he basically broke down and started crying. Mommy, you can't do this. You've always taught me not to quit. You've got to stay in. Our family can handle it. I mean, it was just, he was almost relentless. And then I, re- I realized that for, you know, somebody at that stage, some of these absolute lessons that you teach your kids, it's, it's hard for them to see the nuance. And it was hard for him to understand that it wasn't just about me and whether... I was a quitter or not. It was about a team. Yeah. It was about our country. It was about, you know, uh, the president's agenda and many of the things that, that we were all passionate about trying to get done in a second term. Did we need, did 
I personally need, did my family need, but did the administration and the country need a contentious um, confirmation battle, if that were what the president decided to do, if he were to nominate me, which, by the way, he hadn't, to my knowledge, decided. Right. So, um, but it was really hard for him to get that. Um, and really all I could do was just hold him and hug him tight and let him know that, you know, I was going to be strong. He needed to be strong. And, you know, as you said, it's not really quitting. No. And I think he got that once I Further kept working my behind off for the next four <laughs> years. There's the ultimate, <laughs> yeah, there's the ultimate diplomacy, right? Like working it out with your children. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. And you, I mean, you are so stoic and and i'm happy to see you admit that this hurt you right no, i'm not stoic you gotta get to know me better okay all right <laughs> no, I'm I mean, not stoic. you see are you, you you seem endlessly tough okay i'm not i don't know about endlessly but tough but, i'll take but, that but, but when, that's not stoic okay but when you said that this episode hurt you personally that surprised me um how did it hurt what did, what are you what are you talking about what did it feel like it hurt me primarily because it hurt the people I love most. It hurt my daughter. It tormented my mother, uh, who was just not well um, and strong as, you know, 
strong as anything, despite being that well. Um, I think it hurt my brother a lot more than he admitted in my husband. And as I said, Jake, my son, was the one who seemed throughout this whole thing to be able to have some dispassion and distance from it. And so it just what shook me here was I just didn't expect that from him uh, and his emotion. So that, that was the hardest part. The other thing, honestly, is, and, and this is something else that I think people don't realize, you know, those of us who work in government and are senior have hopefully, as I did, extremely dedicated teams working with them. And my staff, my colleagues, the people I was closest to professionally, they suffered. They were working their behinds off, round the clock, double duty, not just doing the work of supporting the mission to the United Nations, but supporting me uh, and dealing with the press and dealing with the Hill and all this stuff. And they, uh, I think, were traumatized to an extent that I didn't appreciate until much later when they finally, you know, sort of came down from it and were able to say, look, that was really tough. And then any time an attack resurfaced, which is, of course, it has over the years, uh, they sort of have flashbacks to, mm. you know, that period for them. So, you know, the good news is I'm blessed to have an extraordinary family that really loves me and has supported me and it's an extraordinary colleagues and friends who did the same. But the, the hard part is that it's hurtful to them. I mean, it's hurtful, obviously, to me too. But as I, as I write in the book, I had the benefit of having this really intense job where every day I was still the face of the United States to the world. And I had to negotiate with the Russians or deal with the Palestinians and the Israelis or whatever it was. And I just coped by doing my job and powering through. Did you have, as much as, much as you can say, did you have an idea of how great the Russians' desire and ability to affect our election was? You're talking about in 2016? Yeah, I'm talking about what happened in 2016. Were you, did you see, like, this is what they want, and this could happen. They are powerful enough to make this happen. We are vulnerable enough to have something like what happened in 2016 happen. Did I foresee that years ahead of time? Yes, when you, yes. I can't say I foresaw that they would try to do what they did in 16 years ahead of time. I mean, there's a long history of, uh, of Russia involving itself in our domestic politics. It goes back decades. Um, and so certainly I was aware of that history. What was unique that we discovered in 2016 and which persists to this day is that at the highest levels of the Russian government, a decision was taken to engage in a multi-pronged attack on our democracy. It wasn't just one, it wasn't just propaganda. It wasn't just, you know, uh, you know, Russian television or what have you. It was ha hacking into uh, computer systems and stealing emails. It was then disseminating those emails. It was trying to infiltrate and potentially manipulate our state voter registration and voter rolls. Uh, it was um, also, as we learned subsequently to an extent that we hadn't fully seen at the time, this massive social media effort to divide and manipulate American opinion and uh, cause it to favor 
President Trump. So there were all of these different elements to it, a multifaceted, multi-pronged attack, uh, very sophisticated and very brazen and, and invited, in fact, by President Trump. So uh, that I don't think I can credibly claim to have foreseen, say, you know, four years earlier when I was ambassador to the United Nations dealing with the Russians on a daily basis. Mm. Is the threat greater for 2020? I mean, we've done nothing to plug the holes, have we? We haven't done enough. It's not fair to say we haven't done anything. Um, I think our states, for example, are far more understanding of the nature of the threat than they were in 2016 when we tried to get them to be on their toes. And many of the red states thought that this was the Obama White House trying to play games with them, which was completely false. We had back in 2016, Mitch McConnell refusing to acknowledge publicly that there was a Russian problem. That was, you know, that was politics, I think, but that was very much detrimental. Um, Now, I think the states are more witting. I think the states have taken some important steps, probably not sufficient steps in every instance to, uh, to harden their systems. I think Congress has a better sense of it, and there has been some money appropriated for this purpose, not enough, and it's not an assured funding stream. And we have places where we don't even have paper ballot trails, which is vitally important to ensure that you know, every vote is uh, accounted for properly. Mm-hmm. So we have some distance to go. We are in, in a better place than we were. But, but that doesn't suggest that the Russians aren't going to be able to play the games things. they've been playing. Well, not just do different things. Mm-hmm. They probably will also do different things, but do the same things more effectively. Meanwhile, every day, whether it's an election day or not, they are still very active in social media pitting Americans against each other on all the most divisive issues, whether it's race, immigration, gay rights, guns, you name it. And their goal is not just to advantage Trump uh, or whoever it is, you know, 10 years from now. Their goal is to corrode our democracy and have us eat each other alive from within. And are they working with the NRA because they want us to have a gun problem, which would make us be divided and look bad in front of the world and lose whatever moral standing we once had? It's actually more complicated than that. Okay. They're playing both sides of the gun issue. They're playing both sides of every divisive issue because their aim is not to see necessarily take the gun issue, you know, more assault rifles on the street. Their aim is to see Americans divided against one another and doubting their democracy, disbelieving facts and information, um, and having no faith in our fundamental political system. That's their larger goal. It's not X or Y on either side of any issue. It's destroying us from within. And we are, as Americans, playing into that by the nature of our domestic divisions. Because we are so divided, we are very vulnerable to external actors like the Russians exacerbating those divisions. I mean, my my heart is racing as you're saying this because I see the plan succeeding. It is, uh, it is succeeding. And it's succeeding in large part because we have leadership now in Washington that is aiding and abetting these divisions. 
that is thriving on pitting us against each other. That's what the president is doing every day. Mm-hmm. And um, his party in Congress is, seems completely unwilling uh, to try to stop him. Mm-hmm. So that's the danger. It's We're divided. We have adversaries who are trying to exploit those divisions, and we have leadership that's trying to exploit those divisions. Now, before everybody, you know, gets despairing, the good news about this problem is that it is, in the first instance, one of our own making. We are divided, therefore we can heal. We have that capacity. And as I write in the book, at the end, you know, we've been through a whole lot worse than what we're going through now. Think of the Civil War. Think of Reconstruction. Think of Vietnam. Think of riots in our streets and our cities burning down. Um, People need to have a historical perspective and understand that we've had points of massive domestic friction previously, and we've come through them. And we've arguably come through them stronger in some instances. So we have the ability to deal with this. But the reason I sound this alarm is because I don't think most Americans view our domestic political divisions as I do, which is our greatest national security vulnerability. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. You talk about you were not shocked by uh, Trump's victory. You kind of saw that it was possible. You kind of saw that it might be coming. The I'll never forget the face of, of Jen Psaki in the Rose Garden when everybody was together. I mean, you know, she looked like uh, the Edward Monk, the scream of like, oh, my God, like what is going, you know, the country is about to go over a cliff. <laughs> what were you feeling in those moments when you realized, oh, my God, he's going to become president? And, you know, we had moments like, you know, uh, President Obama was supposed to have, what, a 30 minute uh, you know, compulsory basic meeting with him and it turns into a two or three hour discussion where he's teaching him basic politics and de- uh, democracy and like, wh- wh- who are we turning this over to? <laughs> well, first of all, to clarify, I didn't, it, it's not accurate to say that I knew Trump would win. I saw that he could win. Right. Uh, and therefore in the, you know, the the weeks right up, running right up to the election. I, I just wasn't as certain as some others that Clinton was going to win. That that was the point I was trying to make there. Then fast forward, he wins, uh, which according to many reports, even he didn't expect right. Trump. Uh, <laughs> and his level of preparation would suggest that. But then again, I'm not sure he prepares for much, even when he knows it's happening the next day. True. Uh, but... My responsibility in that moment, you know, the day after the election, the days and the weeks after the election, through the transition, um, was to try to execute the most responsible transition we possibly could. Because we were operating from the vantage point of 
you know, we're patriots, we're professionals. Mm -hmm. This is the national interest. We've had, you know, as, as bad as everything that Trump said and did on the campaign seemed, I think there were many of us, myself included, who hoped that the weight of the office and the responsibilities would sober him and steady him. Uh, how foolish were we? You, but you were scared for the country. I was scared, but I wasn't despairing yet. And, and maybe that's because I couldn't afford to be and do my job effectively. Right. I, got, I had my team, I, you know, we had 350, 400 staffers at the White House under me who had to keep functioning. We had two months still of responsibility, two and a half months, you know, where, you know, if there were a terrorist attack or if there were a pandemic or if, you know, Russia invaded another country. That was on us to solve. So we couldn't be losing our stuff right. <laughs> real time. Mm -hmm. And part of what I was trying to model as President Obama was trying to model from above was, you know, we got to do our jobs and do it responsibly. But you are noticing that the person you are interfacing with. My successor designate. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. You were like, this is not adding up. You are not. On the level, you are not the per you are not interested in the right things. You are not prepared. You, you are full of suspicion. That is true, as I write about. It. I mean, it was just a surreal transition, and as it turned out, I was the only senior national security official who ever engaged with their counterpart, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. Their successors were forbidden, apparently, from talking to. Kerry or Carter or whatever. So there was never any handoff done at the State Department or the Defense Department or the intelligence community. Imagine, I was the only one. We had prepared hundreds of very thoughtful, detailed briefing material papers for my, our successors. Um, I read every single one of them. I made sure that you know, if they needed what they needed to know on any of the hot topics, they had at their fingertips. We even anticipated, you know, long shot contingencies, things that could go wrong that would be, you know, where they'd have to react very quickly early in their tenures. And we tried to help them think it through and be prepared. We'd done all that stuff because President Obama's mandate to us, without having any idea whether it was going to be Clinton or Trump, was he wanted a a transition affected as generously and responsibly as he felt President George W. Bush had given him, mm -hmm. for which he was always grateful. Um, but, you know, you can't put a plug in the hole if there's no socket, right? Right. And so I, I had 12 hours with Michael Flynn over four separate meetings, as I write about, and... You know, he was not the guy that everybody thinks of from the Republican convention screaming, lock her up. He was soft-spoken. He was civil. He was respectful. But he was bizarrely, as you said, unfocused on the things that mattered. He wasn't interested in how he was going to staff the NSC. He wasn't interested in where the money was going to come from. He wasn't interested in hearing what, even if he didn't... Uh, agree with our policy on X, Y, or Z. He didn't seem to want to know really much about what we had been doing on X issue, which could inform where they were going. Uh, and then there were other 
you know, very strange things that he was particularly interested in that I thought were inappropriate unless and until he assumed the office. So it was strange, to put it mildly. You talk about some of why this election happened and the fear of a minority-majority country that is coming in around 2040, right? Already under age 10, there are already more black and brown uh, children than white children in America. And I heard this over and over as reporters were combing through the Trump voters, that they would say this almost without even being prompted. This is our last chance. I didn't actually make that equivalence, saying that was what motivated Trump voters, although I'm not arguing with that. I don't know enough. I haven't combed through the data. What I did say is this is the America that's coming. And there are many who are anxious about that, whether that translates into election victory or not. And, you know, and I think it's incumbent upon us to understand that anxiety, not endorse it, but to understand it and, and respect it. I had, I was in a, uh, event last night, uh, with up at a, a, a university in Boston and a student, a white student came up and, and took the microphone and very nice young man and said, you know, I come from Washington state and a lot of my family are very, very conservative and very worried about the sense that they don't feel included, that their voice doesn't matter, that, that, that they don't count anymore. And, you know, what do you say to that? I said, well, as a black American, <laughs> I completely get that. <laughs> <laughs> I know what that That's been like. my experience. You know, like, and, and I, my... My history in this country is of being not counted and excluded. So I don't want that for anybody. Yeah. Uh, but as if it were something novel, it was right. where that question were, was coming from. So we do have the, this is something we're going to have to reckon with. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the, this is, this train has left the station. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it of- is the last gasp. What we, I want to hear more about what you were hearing as you were doing your post-election research. Well, I mean, not even my research, but just watching people be afraid of they will take over, right? I think about a study that came out of Harvard about 15 years ago called uh, White People See Race as a Zero-Sum Game That They Are Losing. So anytime anything is given to a black or a brown person or a woman or a gay or a lesbian person, that is seen as taking something away. And that's our fundamental problem. We don't have to live in a zero-sum world. We're the richest country on earth. The pie should be able to grow, and we should all have bigger slices. But we've got leadership that has decided that everything is zero-sum. It's not just domestically, where, you know, Trump is pitting us against immigrants or, you know, mm-hmm. us, you know, the white people against you know, the squad of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. women of color in Congress. Uh, but he's doing it internationally. That's his whole thing. It, it, his whole mentality of America first is if it's good for us, it's got to be bad for somebody else. Right. And vice versa. And that's not how international relations works either. I mean, we are stronger and far more able to accomplish our objectives working with our allies and partners. It's, ex- it's exactly the opposite of a zero-sum uh, equation. It's a positive-sum equation. But his whole mentality and what he's validating 
domestically in terms of the us versus them, which mirrors the international us versus them, is that, you know, we all have to fight each other for a diminishing pie. And where does that come from? Right. Right. Why is the pie all of a sudden shrinking now? Right. 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 (laughs) Right. Right. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member... I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, what are some of the biggest or what is the biggest security threat that most people don't think about, that most people are not, average people are not aware of? Well, there are, there are a number, but let me focus on one that I think that I think uh, is very real to people if they think about it, but they may not think about it as a national security challenge. One of the things I worry most about is pandemic disease, an avian flu virus. Ebola. Ebola, yeah, but that's, that's a, the thing about Ebola is scary as it is and as deadly as it is, is it's actually pretty hard to transmit. You need bodily fluids, blood, sweat, uh, semen, something of that sort. Okay. But, but an avian flu, which is like the Spanish flu of, you know, the early, uh, 20th century, which killed off millions, is a transmissible by a cough or by putting your hand on a doorknob where there are bad germs. So it, it's far more easy uh, to, um, to see something of that sort spread globally uh, and spread, you know, by virtue of air travel and all the stuff that, you know, we take for granted. Mm. And so we have had to, to confront even in recent years, do you remember in 2009 the, what was called the swine flu mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. concern? That was, that was a deadly uh, epidemic that, that could have gotten even worse. But the point is, you know, wh- whether it's a m- mosquito-borne disease or whether it's, you know, something that is respiratory like an avian flu or a SARS, these kinds of... Uh, very transmissible, highly deadly viruses are something that we all need to be worried about. And often they, you know, emanate from, you know, 
countries that, that we don't pay particular attention to or not enough attention to that may have you know, poor healthcare systems and mm-hmm. lack the ability to detect a disease before it uh, spreads a great deal. And that, that's what we saw in part in West Africa mm-hmm. with Ebola and what we're seeing now in Central Africa with the next worst Ebola epidemic in history that we, it is going on this day as we speak mm. and people aren't paying sufficient attention to it. And the U.S. government isn't rallying the way we rallied to try to contain it. Mm-hmm. So I worry a lot about pandemic disease. And in the Obama administration, this was a real focus. And we rallied other developed countries to try to invest resources in underdeveloped countries to help them build their healthcare surveillance capacity so that they could detect disease, they could test for it, they could call for help before it got out of control. And we did, did that quite effectively. Then, you know, one of my successors comes in, John Bolton, and dismantles the office at the White House that coordinated mm. that activity. I mean, there's been a lot of that sort of dismantling. You called it, uh, I believe you called it a rebuke of all that you guys were trying to do. I mean, that just sort of intellectually, you've got to be like, but also like politically and just personally, you've got to be like, it's not the right way. Well, what's worse than all those feelings that undoubtedly I and others have is it's so stupid. Mm -hmm. They're just ripping things up without a strategy to replace them. Where's the strategy for dealing with Iran besides stumbling into conflict? because he ripped up the Iran deal. Where's the strategy for dealing with climate change, which they don't even acknowledge exists? And the, the Where's p- the strategy for protecting Americans from pandemic disease when we rip up the infrastructure that's supposed to be at the president's side to help deal with it? The position seems to be, if Obama was for it, then it was wrong, right? You see this sort of meme go around Twitter every once in a while. If Obama had cured cancer, then Trump would want to bring it back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it drives partly to something that you talk about. Our political divisions are the greatest threat to national security, right? Because it doesn't allow us to actually deal with problems that are solvable, that should not even be bipartisan. Be partisan, you mean? Should yes, not be partisan. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I, we spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, the national security implications of those divisions. You have adversaries, therefore, that can mm-hmm. get into our wounds like a, uh, you know, like a bad bacteria and make it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, the other side of the coin is we can't build infrastructure. We can't, you know, agree on paid family leave. There are just so many basic things that we need as a country to remain competitive. You know, Trump's screaming about how China's eating our lunch. It's true. But we're eating our own lunch faster than China is because we are not taking the steps to invest in R&D, to bring in the, the human capital that can, that can help us be competitive, to, to have an, a, you know, a concerted nationwide effort to enhance our artificial intelligence capability, our nanotechnology capability, whatever it is. We can't even build, we get, you know, look at our airports. I mean, look t- at our roads. To me, all of this, yes, the political divisions, but really, this is what the Republican Party wants. They want obstruction. They want uh, to be have government not work. Part of their thesis is that right, government should be small enough to be drowned in the bathtub. Right. Well, you know, I I used to think that. I mean, you. But they're exploding the deficit. Mm-hmm. 
it, I think, I think it's, I, I don't think it's quite that sophisticated anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the Republican Party has decided that its only agenda is Donald Trump. They're not even trying to legislate other than passing, uh, than, than uh, confirming judges. Not even trying. Like the whole weeks go by on the congressional calendar in the Senate and nothing happens. And, you know, that's not the Republican Party that I grew up with and right. I used to know. Right. I mean, they, this... there was a philosophy and a, and a, and a theory of the case. Right. You can be for small government, but it doesn't mean you're against legislating. Right. But this, this goes back to, I mean, you could go back to Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh, but I would, I would mark part of the beginning of the modern period, 2008, right? You're about to be, uh, president's about to be inaugurated and Mitch McConnell is saying, we're going to obstruct everything. He wants to name a post office. We're going to obstruct that. Nothing will happen. There's no philosophy. We just want to stop him. Right. And, and actually, remarkably, to a large extent, they failed. Look how much we got done. Mm-hmm. But he did put it out there on Front Street from pretty much day one that that was, you know, what was it? it was more precise than that. He was going to do everything he possibly could to prevent Obama from being reelected. Right. But I think the modern age of this goes back well before 2008. Yes. Yeah. Yes. How do you get here to this amazing position in your life? I wonder what are the talents and the attitudes that allow you to rise up in the way that you have? Well, I spent a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about where I came from and who my people are. And how that made me who I am. And I do that because without that, I think it's impossible to answer that question or or almost any other about who I am and how I became. My uh, my grandparents on my mother's side um, were uneducated immigrants from Jamaica who came to Portland, Maine in 1912. Why'd they go to Maine? They went to Maine because my grandfather met a man in Jamaica who owned a hotel, a winter hotel in Jamaica and a summer hotel in Maine and uh, promised my grandfather a job if he got his way to Jamaica. I mean, from Jamaica to Maine. To, to Maine. So that's what put my grandfather on the banana boat. That must have been And then a, he sent for my grandmother a year later and they got married. Bit of a culture clash <laughs> for them. Well, there, there were not a lot of people of color in Maine. And it's cold. At that time. It's cold. Uh, but they, they came with that immigrant determination mm-hmm. and they had five kids and my grandfather and grandmother scraped and saved and sent all five of their kids to college. And two of them became doctors, one a university president, one an optometrist. And then my mother, the youngest, who ended up being a corporate executive who sat on 11 corporate boards and spent most of her professional life trying to expand access to higher education because mm-hmm. she almost got denied the ability to go to college because her father had an accident at work that crippled him for a couple years, and she was denied a scholarship, finally got one, and she made it her life's work um, to try to expand access. And she was known as the mother of Pell Grants. She worked on the program, the Pell Grant program that, has enabled 80 million Americans 
to go to college. You too? Yes. Of course. Yes. So that's my mother's side of the family. My father's side of the family um, were the descendants of slaves in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. My great-grandfather himself was a slave after emancipation, served in the Union Army in South Carolina, and then came to New England by the goodwill of one of his white officers and started to get an education. Ended up going to college, getting a divinity degree, uh, and this is in the eighteen hundreds. Yes, he college? this is a late. He was a slave. Very who few. got very very few. Not only to get a college degree and it became a minister, he started a school in New Jersey known as the Bordentown School in the eighteen early eighteen late eighteen eighties early eighteen nineties that lasted seventy years until Brown versus the Board of Education. I'll explain that in a second. And educated generations of African-Americans, both in college preparatory skills and in manual technical skills, vocational skills. Um, wow. And, you know, people like Einstein and, uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington, they came to this school wow. at different times to engage with the students. And it was shut down after Brown in 1955 because it was a state-supported school and it was all black. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to expand. It was segregated because they tried to integrate it, but couldn't get white people to want to come to it. I wonder why. You wonder why. And so next thing you know, after a, a school that had done so much good was shut down. But that's my great-grandfather. So these people were not about slacking. They were about achievement and excellence and rising and serving. And that was how I was raised, by my parents on both sides. And so by the time I came along, you know, three generations later, my parents had become successful professionals. My dad had, you know, served at Tuskegee in World War II. Wow. And, you know, ended up being a governor of the Federal Reserve. But after facing, you know, generations of, of oppression and segregation. And he didn't want that for me and my brother and taught us to believe in ourselves and not take crap off of people and don't let anybody tell us we can't. And so he just raised us as did my mother with a fierce sense of our own self-worth and a determination not to let any aspect of the system thwart our abilities or ambitions. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets back to what I was trying to say at the beginning about, you know, I was a young black girl who was raised in not to apologize or to, you know, defer to anybody or to, uh, you know, kiss any rings. I was just told to just be my damn self and do my best. And if people didn't like it, that was not my problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, no, it but does. that tells it's you an amazing, what I was raised with. It's an amazing gift um, from your that's parents. The right, that's the right word for and it. And from your family of this sort of high expectation, don't take anything. and Which uh, is not to say that they, they were trying to sugarcoat things. They knew that they knew well, what were, a mean world it is. You were told you got to be twice as good. So you were prepared, but you're given this high expectation, which is amazing. And a lot of support and opportunity to achieve it. I mean, I, I was blessed with a tremendous education. I was blessed with parents who, even though they couldn't live with each other, were very good to me and my brothers. 
you talk about what your family gave to you in that, but your superpower, what is it that you have brought to the table day after day that has allowed you to ascend? That's a great way to put the question. Um, I think one is a confidence, an inherent self-confidence. Two is, you know, I, I, I work hard. I do my homework. I, I don't slack. Um, and three, I'm maybe to a fault about the mission, whether that mission is getting a best education, whether it's serving my country, whether it's trying to, you know, figure out how to run a team effectively, whether it's beating the Russians in the Security Council, I'm about the mission. And so I, I have a focus that enables me to set a goal and, and, and try to drive to it and not, uh, not have a lot of myself invested in it on a personal level, but more on a, a level of here's our objective mm-hmm. and let's, let's move there together. I think that's, my brother would put it differently because he's tried to explain all this to me. <laughs> he's, trying to explain but, you to you. He'd try to explain me to me. But he would, he would say that my gift and my failing are two sides of the same coin, which is that I always put mission first. And sometimes I make the mistake of understanding that, you know, to succeed sometimes in putting mission first, you can't forget about yourself. And that was what he was trying to explain to me in terms of his assessment in part about what I should have learned from Benghazi and its aftermath. How do you keep the self-confidence high? Because it can ebb and flow with the day or the hour sometimes. And it sounds like you're like, no, I got to. I got a Teflon shield around this here. Nobody's no, it's not. This. It's not that, you know, we all have our own issues and insecurities, right? And as I actually write about in the book, um, one of mine is about my appearance and about my weight and about, you know, my hair and all this stuff that stuff that I actually, I don't think I'm unfairly saying I got some of that from my mother. Uh, and, you know, I don't worry about whether I have the skills to do something. I mean, I'm not trying to be a brain surgeon. I'd worry if I were trying to do that. That's not my strength. But, I, and I don't worry about my motivations because I believe they're basically good. But I do worry that, you know, uh, that I may run out of steam. I do worry that um, in in trying to put a mission first that um, you know, I may not have brought all my patients home when it comes to my kids or my husband or all that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm very aware of my shortcomings, but I'm also com- confident in my strengths. And I think, you know, by the time I'm 55, which I'll be next month, um, I kind of know how to make the best of my strengths and try to manage my weaknesses and learn from them and mitigate them. I'm a very impatient person. That's a problem. I'm trying with age to, yeah. Is that something that... Take it easier on myself and other people. Is this something that that powers the work? That like, I want to get this right, 
I'm not settling. I'm driving myself. I That's mean, part of it. Be, you and must be deeply driven. You think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think that's part of the, that's part of the the fuel in the tank. But it's also, you know, it can be corrosive of oneself and of others. You know, not everybody's wired the same way. And I write actually about how my third grade teacher in third grade told me to be more patient with and forgiving of my classmates. <laughs> and I didn't forget that because it's been my problem ever since. <laughs> wow. Where is she now? I have no idea. She was something else. She was a pistol from Estonia, a woman named Miss Cabell. Uh, and she, she, she set me straight early. Was this the dream? Have you lived the dream? Have you superseded the dream? I didn't have a fixed dream. I knew I cared about policy and public service. That was how I was raised. Those that, that was the, the sort of business of my family and the business of Washington. But I didn't know if I was going to be an elected official, uh, an appointed official, a career person, whether I was going to work on foreign or domestic policy. I actually thought when I was 10, I made a judgment that, okay, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a senator. And, you know, until I was about 25, I was organizing myself with those thoughts in mind, um, mindful of the fact that I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., which still doesn't have any voting representation in Congress. But what caused me to turn away from that at both law and politics um, was on the academic side, I got, I, I took two years w between what I thought was going to be college and law school when I got a scholarship to go to study in England. I decided to use that time to learn international relations because if I, I thought, this is my mindset, I thought, okay, I'm going to be an elected official. I, you know, I don't want to just be one dimensional. Senators have to vote on things foreign and domestic. Let me take this two years to learn about international stuff. That was my you know, youthful calculation. And then I fell in love with it and decided to stay and do my PhD. And I decided that I wasn't going to waste my time going to law school. Not that it would have been a waste of time, but for me, right. having gotten my PhD, I was done with school. And then similarly, at about the same time in my life, in my early to mid twenties, I realized that temperamentally, at least at that point in my life, I was not patient enough to compromise and do all the things you got to do to be a politician. And I also, as I mentioned earlier, you know how I said I don't like asking people for stuff? That includes money. <laughs> so I realized, you know, here I am. How am I going to raise money? How am I going to, you know, basically prostrate myself to be an elected official? I don't have the patience for that. And I realized that I didn't have to be an elected official to influence public policy, that there were other ways to do that. Um, and so that was the path I went on. And honestly, you know, I didn't know until I took my first job at the White House whether I was going to be working on domestic and economic policy or foreign policy. I had opportunities, blessedly, to, to choose between the two. Uh, and I sort of made just made a eeny, meeny, miny, mo bet on foreign policy and, again, fell in love with it and stuck with it. 
Now I might, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do in the future, but I'm more likely to head in the domestic policy direction. Well, yeah, I mean, like, what is the what is the goal, the dream for the next five years? Where do you where do you want to go? You know what? I, <laughs> I I'm not trying to answer that question now. I'm I'm at the point where I feel incredibly blessed to have been able to serve at the highest levels. I have blessed to have the family that I have, and now I've got this freedom to do what I want to do or not want to do. So I'm, I needed to, and I wanted to write this book and I want to do my best to share it as broadly as possible with basically anybody who wants to compete and thrive in unforgiving environments. And if they've been knocked down to get back up, that's what I'm about with this book and sharing some of the lessons that I've learned from my family, my upbringing, my service. Um, and then after that, you know, I'll, I'll see where my passion lies. I'm kind of at this point where I'm open to what the spirit moves me to do. Yeah. I'm not on a mission to do X, Y, and Z for myself at this point. Well, it must be quite liberating to say. It is. Who knows what's next? Who, who knows? We'll and at see. the end of the day, you know, I'm not worried about it. It's the most liberated I've felt in my entire life. John Ronson wrote a book called So You've Been Publicly Humiliated. And you talk, and right, and you, right, we could have borrowed some of that for this, right, out of Benghazi. Unfortunately, talk, haven't read it. Right, and you talked, you talked about, you know, talking to people about how to get back up, you know. So for folks who have had a big public wallop, how do you get back up and keep going when you're like, everybody's thinking about this? Okay, so in my experience, it, it, first of all, it's pretty basic. You have two choices to stay down and be defeated or to get back up. There's not an in-between. And to me, that's a no-brainer. You got to get back up. You can't let, particularly when the hit is bogus, that take you down forever. And even if the hit is legitimate, as is the case for some people, you still have the same two binary choices. Uh, and, you know, you you have to choose, you know, resurrection and redemption and be part of that for yourself. And for me, it was easy because I was still in a job that where every day I was required to show up and do my best for the United States of America. So I didn't have that luxury of, you know, going and hiding in a hole and feeling sorry for myself unless I was choosing to stay down. Uh, And so I had this built in, uh, mechanism that that almost kept me afloat if mm. I would let it and I had the colleagues and the family and all of that but but more than anything it was a recognition that you know I believe in who I am and what I've done and what my motives are I know I'm not a liar I know I'm serving this country to the best of my ability and doing it for the right reasons and if some people want to deny that or denigrate it let them it's kind of like, you know, what my father taught me. Don't take crap off of people. And he had another message for us, which pertains in a different way here. And it was, it, he, he shared it with us in the context of race. Uh, this is, you know, after his experience growing up in segregated South and serving in a segregated Air Force and all this stuff and having his professional life constrained until much later in terms of what he could do. But he at some point said, if being black is going to be a problem, 
it's not going to be a problem for me. It's going to be a problem for them or for the other people. And he understood that bigotry is a poison that you can either let infuse your own bloodstream or you can fight it and hold it off and recognize that it's a poison that comes from a, um, a species that is fundamentally insecure. That's their defense mechanism. And you, you can let it poison you or not. But so coming back to, you know, it, I was either going to let other people's view of me, particularly the people who disrespected me and disliked me, color who I am and how I thought about myself, or I was just going to say, that's, that's going to be their problem, not mine. Thanks to Susan for a great interview. Definitely pick up her new book, Tough Love. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall, and our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shonda Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment, and we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down. (laughs) 